that one day we will rise to meet you. Father, your children are declaring through your Messiahship this morning that we trust you, that we know you will never fail, that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You will do everything that you set out to do. You will accomplish everything you set out to accomplish. We thank you for being the one constant source of something that we can believe in and trust in a world where we can't believe in and trust in almost anything. We certainly can't believe and trust in ourselves. Jesus, we thank you for your magnificent love, your extraordinary patience, for your arms that are wide open, calling all of your children back to you all of the time. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness. We thank you for this time, and we thank you for this place. We thank you that we are able to still worship you. And while it would be our preference to all be together, help us to be so grateful that we can just still do this freely. We give this time to you. Please be with Joe. You have blessed him with your word to deliver today. May it cut to our hearts. May it help to shape and transform our minds because this word is from you. And may it prepare us to go out into the world knowing what it means to follow you. It's up. So it's up. So you don't have to worry about it. Just mute this when it's ready. You guys can sit. We have to cut off because of the transition. About a 20-second delay. Amen. All right, and we're live. We're continuing this little kind of dual stream in both places uh, just to kind of have an opportunity to worship together. So those of you that are here, that's great. Hopefully the audio is coming through just fine on the video and everything. Uh, So I was supposed to do the announcements today, but nobody gave me any, so I'm going to make up my own. (coughs) Um, The Patriots have signed uh, nobody. The Bucks have signed Tom Brady. That's one thing. (laughs) Uh, the lightning start on August 2nd, which we learn about. So those are our Grace Life announcements for this Sunday. So, but uh, we're continuing to do this kind of mobile way of doing church in two different places. And so hopefully that will continue to get better and better as we go. In the meantime, we'll still have our live feed for everyone as well. So uh, I've titled this message this week, uh, Get Your Jesus Behind Me. Get Your Jesus Behind Me. So, um, have you ever had a moment you were so confident about something and then suddenly realized you had it completely wrong? And you were convinced, right? You had complete and full understanding. And then the moment of serious anxiety comes, oh no, I had it wrong. And I had a lot invested in my opinion and I was way off. So I'm going to bring up a picture, and Kevin's going to put it full screen so you guys can see it on the video. I'm not particularly good at putting things together. I get impatient sometimes, and I don't want to, (coughs) excuse me, read the instructions carefully. And more than once, I've put something together only to realize near the end I didn't follow the directions fully. 
And so you see this picture up there. Can you guys see what's wrong with this particular basketball goal picture? <laughs> I'll give it a second so you can see. Or maybe if you can't see, I'll just kind of come over here. Do you see how the, bat, the, the, the weight that's supposed to keep the goal from flipping over is reversed? <clears throat> so, so everybody knows now what's wrong with it. Uh, please, Kevin, take that off full screen. So I remember putting this basketball together, basketball goal together many years ago for the Nightlife Center kids so that we could play ball. It was in one of, one of our other locations in our transition. And I got to page two of the directions, and I thought, yeah, yeah, I don't need to read what these people have to say. I got it. I've been coaching basketball for 20 years. I know how to put a goal together. <clears throat> so I worked on it for a few hours. And I was so proud. I had it ready to go for when the nightlife kids got there after school, and we were going to ball out. And the kids got there, and they said, listen, the basketball goal's outside. They were excited, so they went outside. I was inside doing something. And they come back in, um, Pastor Joe, the hoop's not right. <coughs> Excuse me, yes, it is. <laughs> I've coached for 20 years. I know what I'm doing. No, Pastor Joe, for real, come look. No, I'm not going to look. It's right. Just play. Okay, but we're going to fall a lot. <clears throat> <clears throat> so I went outside, and I quickly saw the problem, and I thought, oh, my word, how did I miss that? <clears throat> Excuse me. So the razzing I got was quite harsh, as you can imagine. I will never forget it. <clears throat> and often that is how we get with our image of Jesus, the way I got with this basketball goal. So let's read the passage today. <clears throat> Mark chapter 8, verse 31 to 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days rise again. <clears throat> and Jesus said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to correct him or rebuke him. Peter is rebuking Jesus for saying he has to die. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So we're going to look at three applications like we always do with each passage of Scripture at Grace Life. The first one is the historical. What about man? What does he do? And why and how does he do it? I've entitled this uh, section, Messiah is Here. So it's an exciting time for the disciples. <clears throat> it's a significant emotional, intellectual moment for all of Israel at least from their perspective, disciples are excited because even though nobody else knows about Jesus being the Messiah, because Jesus had just asked Peter in the passage before, who do people say I am? And Peter says, they, you know, they say these things, but who do you think I am, Peter? And Peter says, well, you're Messiah. So they're excited. Nobody else knows, but they have a front row seat of Messiah entering in and setting up his kingdom. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, Megan did a good job of discussing this in her message last week. And Messiah is an inspirational topic for the Jews. And Peter, the default spokesman for the, the group, has just answered this exciting question, who do you see I am? This is very exciting news about Messiah. It's the ultimate good news for all Jewish people. And Peter said it first. So clearly he, since he's the one that spoke up, he is the most forethought expert on Messiah. <coughs> Excuse me. The political hope of all Israel has been waiting for centuries. Both as a nation and as individuals, they have been anticipating. And now it's here. There's chills of excitement. 
the Messiah the prophets talked about, the one people have waited for for centuries. He is going to vanquish Rome. He's going to reestablish the throne of David. <coughs> and you can imagine how excited they are. Not only that, they are Messiah's closest friends. They are about to become the most influential humans on the planet. The problem is, they only saw half the picture. Their training isn't complete. They still don't know the full picture. <clears throat> That's going to be in focus about what Jesus is going to do next. And he is going to begin to fully train them over the next nine months to a year about what Messiah really means. And it's not about power. It's not about vanquishing Rome. It's not about politics. It's about suffering and dying. And while they had identified Jesus correctly as Messiah, they don't fully understand the plan. To them, Messiah still means power. Power. <clears throat> and suddenly on the heels of this exciting news about Jesus being Messiah, he begins to reveal the dark side of the story. <clears throat> He's a suffering, dying Messiah. And that's nowhere in their thought process at this moment. It's not even a potential outcome in their mind. Their only outcome is, Rome's going to get it. The Messiah is to suffer rejection? The Messiah is going to be tortured? He's going to be beaten? He's going to be put to death on a cross? <clears throat> well, that flies in the face of everything they knew about Messiah. You see, they had an idea of Messiah on their terms. <clears throat> they were excited about the earthly recognition, the power, the benefits of being associated with Messiah might bring. The miracles, the healing, the public owning and dissing of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other temple swamp creatures. They loved the crowds of adoration, and it's all quite intoxicating, frankly. And it wasn't just Peter. If you remember, there was a story about James and John. And they're arguing who gets to sit on the right hand of Jesus. Remember that story? <clears throat> and Jesus says, why are you even asking that question? The last shall be first. The first shall be last. So this is the whole concept that the disciples have. We are with Messiah. We are fixing a rocket. Now, what would cause Peter to correct Jesus? And what would cause even James and John to debate over who gets to sit next to the Messiah in the kingdom? <clears throat> See, the Messiah of the disciples was, in fact, political. He has come to take revenge, to dole out justice, not love. <clears throat> they see Israel as a superior nation state to Rome. They can't yet see their own depravity or Israel's depravity. They can't see their own need for justification. They don't see that defeating Rome is not going to solve their problem. No, there's gonna, they're going to need a, a Messiah who's capable of defeating evil. They had, in fact, put their own image of Jesus in front of Jesus himself. <clears throat> Think about that. They had an image of Jesus, and they had put their own image in front. So that's the historical. Let's look at the spiritual part of this passage. I want to talk about the harsh reality. 
the first thing I want you to notice is the suffering Messiah. There's a little bit of a Greek lesson here. The Greek phrase <coughs> is right here where Jesus says that the Son of Man, in, in the middle there, you see this, this three words, heon tau anthropal. That means Son of Man. Anthropal is we get our, our English word anthropology, the study of man. So heon is son of is tau anthropon. He says, the son of man must suffer. The third word is pola. Day, the first one, says it is necessary for the son of man to have much suffering. Pola is a plural. It's not he's going to stub his toe. No, the son of man is going to endure many stages of suffering. It's not going to be all fine one day and then, and then Good Friday comes and bam, he's dead. No, he's going to endure suffering for a while. The Son of Man, it is necessary for the Son of Man to endure much suffering. And what was that suffering? He gives a little bit of insight, but we see later on in Mark and other Gospels, it's arrest. <clears throat> Prosecution for a crime he didn't commit. Persecution. Rejection by the Jewish elders. <clears throat> He's going to be mocked. He's going to be tortured. And then finally, an excruciating, painful death on the cross. But Jesus ends this incredible teaching moment with all this bad news with a prediction of the first Easter. He says, look, the Son of Man is going to have to suffer a lot, but then on the third day he will be raised again. <clears throat> but Peter, somehow, he cannot put it together in his mind, the Easter part. All he can think about is what Jesus just said. The Son of Man is going to have to endure a lot of suffering. The suffering of a Messiah destroys Peter's dreams. His image of Jesus is marred. It's scarred. And can you imagine the massive balloon popping that Peter must feel when he experiences this on the heels of saying, Jesus, you're Messiah. He says, you're right, I am Messiah. Don't tell anyone because let me tell you what else is going to happen. I'm going to suffer a lot, but then I'm going to be raised from the dead. He can't hear the race from the dead part. <clears throat> and Peter says, no, 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 no. That cannot be. And hearing Jesus say the long-awaited Messiah must suffer and die, nope, no, uh-uh, no way, forget it. Jesus, come here. And Peter confidently, just as confident as I was with the basketball goal, he confidently pulls Jesus aside to correct him. This isn't the Messiah we've been waiting for, Rabbi. <clears throat> this is not how it's supposed to go. No, you're not going to die. And Peter's response to Jesus teaching them about his death and resurrection is proof that he doesn't understand. And it's not because he's stupid. <clears throat> he's a smart guy. And it's not because he hasn't heard a lot from Jesus. He certainly has. But they are focused on the moment. The headlines of the day have completely enraptured their thought process. They're forgetful of what the prophets taught in Isaiah 53 about the suffering Messiah and Psalm 16 about the suffering Messiah and other places. They aren't even thinking about that. They knew those passages, but they aren't thinking about them. All they can think about is right now. And what exactly... Was Peter so upset about? Jesus says he's going to be rejected and killed, but he'll defeat the grave. Wouldn't that be good news? 
don't worry, Peter. Yes, I'm Messiah. And at first it's going to go really bad, but in the end I'm going to come back from the grave and I'm going to destroy all evil. That sounds pretty victorious, but Peter doesn't get it because he has an image of Jesus that he wants to worship. Do you hear that? He has an image of Jesus that he wants to worship, which is the political Messiah. He doesn't see the power that a resurrected Messiah can bring to the table. He goes right to the first part about Jesus being rejected and dying. The disciples don't see a need in their life for the pain of the cross. They wanted their earthly kingdom, and they wanted it now. And Jesus' response is harsh. Be gone, Satan. You know, I don't like to discuss politics in my sermon, but Dr. Gillespie mentioned that lately there's been a lot of politics in my sermon. And I know there has, but I can't help it because that is the context of what Jesus is dealing with in the Gospel of Mark. It's not because all of a sudden I've turned political. <clears throat> He's dealing with political issues. Peter's perspective was a political issue. Megan did a great job of describing it as make Israel great again or something like that last week. But Jesus has very harsh words. He's already had harsh words for the conservative Pharisees and the liberal Sadducees already. Remember, just a couple passages earlier. <clears throat> now he has even more harsh words for Peter, who says, no, 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 Messiah is not supposed to die. He has harsh words that shock Peter, and frankly, they shock the disciples. And they leave all of them with one option. Shut up and listen, because you're not getting something. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand. <clears throat> your agenda, your image of me is closer to what Satan wants than mine. But you don't see it because you're focused on the things of man. In fact, your perspective of Messiah is the same exact image that Satan has. A worldly, earthly Messiah. Get behind me. Satan, get your image of me behind me. Get your Jesus behind me was the title of the message. And imagine what Peter feels <clears throat> because the scripture says Jesus is hearing Peter rebuke him and Jesus sees the disciples. And Peter says, or Jesus says loud enough, not only for Peter to hear, but the disciples, get behind me, Satan. Jesus' raised voice is certainly overheard by the disciples who are just a few yards away. Can you imagine how Peter's like, what did you just call me? And Peter looks over at James and John. They're going, I didn't. He called you Satan, not me. <clears throat> Look at this passage. Look at this Hebrew phrase. <clears throat> that last word is Satan. That first word means you get behind me. Get hence, Satan. Go away. Get out of my way, Satan. You know, we see that phrase somewhere else in Scripture. It's the same response Jesus had for Satan when he tried to tempt Jesus with what? Kingdoms of the world. The same thing that Peter wants out of Jesus, Satan wanted out of Jesus. When Satan said, tell you what, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 4, 9 and 10? And he said, all the, here's what Satan says, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. It's the same words. 
Jesus doesn't use this phrase on accident. He could have said, shut up, Satan, in, Ma in Matthew. He said, be gone, Satan. Get away from me, Satan. Get hence, Satan. And it's the same words that are in Mark. Get away from me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you got it all backwards. The political, cultural evils of Rome aren't your problem. Did you hear me? They aren't your issue. Your sin is your problem. You want a kingdom? You want salvation? Well, for it to happen, I'm going to have to make the ultimate sacrifice first. That's something Satan doesn't want me to do. <clears throat> and that moment was for Peter. In essence, this. Satan is using you, Pete. Yeah, I know you love me. Yeah, I know you follow me. But you are being used by Satan by portraying your image of Jesus. Your image of me. Without that harsh moment, I don't think Peter or the disciples would ever have understood the seriousness of their error. Jesus knew Peter and the disciples needed to hear it that way. It's a lesson Peter learned full well and even clarified it in one of his own epistles. You know why I know he got it? Because this is what he said in 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. In other words, he died that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, Peter got it. But of course, there was one other moment where he didn't, right after this, remember when he denied Jesus three times. He still didn't get it until the very end. So let's look at the personal. What about us? What are we supposed to do with this heartbreaking story that Peter endures? This was my sermon preview this week on social media. By nature, we have a tendency to create an image of Jesus that fits our personal agenda or worldview. That's our nature. Yes, even good Christians do it. I use this phrase, Lord Jesus. This phrase, Lord Jesus. See, just as with Peter... Many people claim passionate allegiance to Jesus. Even rightly calling him Messiah, King, and Lord. But far too often, we do it with an image of Jesus in our head that fits our own ideas, our own culture, our own politics. A Jesus designed to fulfill our worldly agenda. As with Peter, it can be politics, <clears throat> or maybe it's even some public policy you're passionate about. I hate talking about this stuff, but it's right here. See, we tend to see Jesus even to go step further through the prism of our own race. Our own image of Jesus is based upon our skin color often. White Anglo-Saxon Jesus, no, he was dark-complected. We have no idea. And what we do, we start to put our image in front of him. And he has to say, get behind me. Because your image is focused on the things of the world and not me. And just as Peter saw him as a Jewish king, 
we see him as standing for the ideals of America. Some other countries see him the same way. This happens because we consult our own understanding more than we do his own words. I mean, it's pretty clear all throughout the Gospel of Mark, he is denying any political allegiance. Liberals, conservatives, he doesn't like any of them. And without a systematic, contextual studying of the Gospels like we are doing right now through Mark, we can't really know who Jesus really is, what his agenda is. And we can learn from his rebuke of both the conservative Pharisees and the liberal Sadducees that he wasn't a Democrat or a Republican. He taught that both, no matter what policy they might embrace, were desperately in need of redemption, forgiveness, that only a suffering, dying Messiah could bring. That's exactly where Peter was before this shocking, heartbreaking confrontation. And like Peter, you know what we do? We often rebuke others with the morality of our own personal, cultural, political Jesus. And we do it with arrogance and confidence. I was looking at a friend's Facebook feed. He put a post up there that was a little bit incendiary. And his friends were saying, well, you're going to have to pick a side soon. It's going to have to be God's side or my side, or Satan's side or my side. They actually said that. Actually, people from both sides of the political aisle said it. No, God's side is my side. No, it's my side. In fact, I'll go a step further. As a pastor, I have had people who don't even believe in Jesus try to use their image of Jesus to correct and condemn me. Well, how can you say that? Your Jesus said this. How do you know what Jesus said? Well, because he said it. Well, show me chapter and verse. People don't even believe in Jesus. Try to use an image of Jesus to judge others. Have you ever had that experience? How can you support this issue, not oppose that issue, or vote for this candidate or that one? What would Jesus do? Here's what Jesus would do. Here's his response to anybody that talks like that. You ready? Depart from me. This is going to blow you away. Look at Luke chapter 13, 26, and 27. Then you'll begin to say, but we voted for the right candidate. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I added that in. We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I will tell you, I don't know where you come from. Get behind me. It's the same phrase, the same word again. You worker of evil. Isn't that frightening? It should, as a Christian, make you stop and think, "Uh uh-oh. So how does Jesus feel when his image is distorted by our own personal bias? I mean, it's clear Jesus uses it as an extremely, or views it as an extremely dangerous, serious matter. It explains his harsh interaction with Peter, doesn't it? Why? Because the eternal consequences of putting your own image of Jesus before him is profoundly serious. In fact, the warning he first gave to Satan and then to Peter, and this repeated a third time for all of us, is this. Get your image of Jesus behind me. It's not my agenda. It's not my job. It's not my goal. Doesn't it sound a lot like that passage there in Luke? Doesn't it sound a lot like what he said to Satan 
in Matthew and Peter and Mark? Would those words, think about this, would those words from the mouth of Jesus frighten you? If he said it to you? Uh, excuse me, Pastor Joe. Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. What if others overheard Jesus saying that to you? Like it did for Peter. Like, it's almost like Peter's talking quietly. You know, Jesus, listen, you can't do that, right? You can't say that. And Jesus is here, and he's hearing, and he looks over. He sees the disciples are looking. And it's almost like, get behind me, Satan, to make sure that they heard it. See, Jesus was being privately rebuked, but Jesus called Peter out publicly because it was such a serious issue. Can you imagine the consequences of hearing these words get behind me? I don't know who you are. I've never, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I don't know you. Can you imagine hearing those words after this life when it's too late? Maybe on judgment day? Listen, I never cared if you were a liberal or a conservative, a Democrat or a Republican, Roman or Jewish or American. That's not my agenda. It has nothing to do with it. So how do we avoid this tragic moment? I'm thankful for harsh mercy. Doesn't that sound kind of strange, harsh mercy? John 6.44, the first part of the verse says, No one can come unless, to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. See, the harsh reality is the human spirit, your human spirit, mine, is incapable of comprehending the real image and the real agenda of Jesus on your own. Just like Peter, James, and John, we don't have the ability to see the cosmic good versus evil nature of our dilemma. We don't have a full understanding of just how deep our depravity runs. How much we need, desperately need, our sin debt paid by a suffering Messiah. We cannot comprehend the cosmic powers of good and evil that we have no control over, by the way, battling for our very heart, mind, and soul. For us to get to that point, to understand the depths of it, <coughs> it requires God's intervention. And nobody's going to be able to comprehend the true image of who Jesus is without this intervention. And sometimes it's harsh. It can be a harsh moment. And you might think, wow, that's so unfair. Why does it have to be this way? Why can't we figure it out on our own? Why do we need to go through this harsh reality to get mercy? Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we had our own image of Jesus that we had put before him, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, instead of saying, well, why can't we figure it out? Your actual response should be this. Thank God that my ability to comprehend who Jesus really is is not reliant upon me. I am so thankful that it is not up to me to try to figure out the most important secret of the universe 
that has to do with the salvation of my soul. I'm so thankful that it is dependent and relying upon an intervention by God. Even if it takes a harsh moment, bring it. And sometimes it will take a harsh moment, like the one Peter endured. Yet the life-saving intervention that he had gives us what the gospel requires. And you know what that is? An understanding of our depravity and the danger of eternal judgment that it places on us. Without it, just like Peter, we naturally create our own image of Jesus that lines up with Satan's agenda. And we must, church, this is so important, we must make sure our image of Jesus is kept behind the real Jesus. We must diligently search the scriptures to make sure our kingdom work fits his kingdom agenda. We cannot let our own political or cultural or earthly goals contaminate the image of who Jesus really is. Because his agenda is one agenda to deliver us and all those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world from the greatest threat of all. And it ain't Rome. It's selfish, man-centered, total depravity. Heavenly Dad, we ask that you would help us, first of all, sniff out any false images of Jesus like Peter had. Help us to be humble enough to keep those images behind you Lord, we pray that those images will not impact us in how we interact with the world. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a supernatural, divine hunger for knowing the true image of Jesus. As we study your scriptures and see what you have said about who you are and what you came to do. Help us not to use the image of Jesus to judge others who might have a different cultural or political point of view but that we would find commonality and oneness under one banner, which is this. We are absolute heathen sinners who need a suffering Messiah to die and be resurrected again so that we might live. Help us to keep our fake Jesuses behind us and look to the real one. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for joining us again this week here and at home. We'll do it again next week in the same way. And uh, we're praying for you. Uh, some of you have reached out to us this week that you needed some help with some things. Please continue to let us know. If you need us, we've got your back. We love you. We look forward to the time we can all meet together again at some point. Be praying for that. But until then, we're going to continue to meet together. Have a great week.